Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Jamie L. Jones, author of Rendered Obsolete, Energy Culture and the Afterlife of U.S. Whaling, published this year by University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Well, my background is in, um, my, 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 my TDC training is in American studies, so I have an interdisciplinary approach to American culture, working mainly through literary studies, art history, and cultural history. And this book, uh, Rendered Obsolete, is really, largely speaking, a book about 19th century energy transition in mostly the Euro-American world and the stories that I'm chronicling happen in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And I'm really interested in what happens during this period as uh, folks in the U.S. start extracting and consuming fossil fuels at an exponential rate. Um, and this is a this this gives rise to huge transitions in American societies that have been chronicled very extensively elsewhere. But what I'm really interested in is what happened to those old resource regimes that were displaced by this new market for fossil fuels. And in particular, I'm interested in the uh, U.S. whaling industry, the whale oil industry in particular, the industry um, that produced whale oil for lighting and machine lubrication in the 19th century in the U.S. And I'm interested in telling the story of what happens to this obsolescent energy regime as this new dominant energy regime, by the way, the energy regime that we're still living in, kind of fossil fuel modernity, comes into place. Where does that old industry go when it dies? And I I think that I got into this project uh, beginning in graduate school, and it had to do with my encounters with two signal works of whaling culture. One was Moby Dick by Herman Melville. You know, I think that a novel that every PhD student, PhD student in American literature will encounter and, and think a lot about, but also with a really, um, a more obscure work of 19th century material culture, a tiny little moving panorama, a kind of desktop version of a moving panorama that turned by crank in a little toy case that featured a whaling voyage. I wrote about this object for a uh, grad seminar in art history when I was in grad school. And my encounters with these two cultural objects from the whale oil industry, about the whale oil industry, really just opened my mind to how outrageous that industry actually was. I just met the whole history of whaling with a sense of incredulity and wild curiosity. 
I, um, you know, wailing is is so shockingly violent, and the scale of the horror is is so great, both in the cost to whale lives and at such a large scale, and at the cost to human lives. It's unbelievably dangerous, and it just seemed outrageous and outlandish to me in every sense of the word that whaling was the way that people in the 19th century got some of the oil for their lamps, some of the lubricating oil for these machines that were lubricating machines in this rapidly industrializing United States. But once you start to see any extractive industry as being very strange and outlandish, it becomes easy to see just how strange and outlandish the whole prospect of energy production and consumption and extraction actually is. So that was my way into this project, and I've never really been able to shake that um, initial sense of the outlandishness and the outrageousness of energy extraction. And so you describe this idea of energy as kind of a myth. So what's what makes energy a myth? Yeah, so my work is uh, really influenced by the scholarship of Kara Daggett, a political science scientist who wrote a book called The Birth of Energy, published, came out a, a few years ago. And in that book, she chronicles the idea, the sort of birth of the idea of energy in the 19th century in England and America as something that came into being um, as an idea that yoked together the consumption and the production of fossil fuels with the notion of work. She really is building on the thermodynamic sense of the word energy as a kind of way of understanding what effort is required to produce work. And her book lays out um, a kind of gloriously inventive theory for understanding how energy and the governance of work touched every facet of life in the 19th century in Europe and America and in the colonies associated with those places under domination by those places. And I think my 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 work kind of picks up on um picks up on on Daggett's work by kind of expanding what I call the myth of energy. I mean energy it, it, it's an idea, but the way that energy is produced when we think about fossil fuels, when we think about things like the energy economy, the um, energy transition, what we're talking about is an abstract unit of measure and that is really divorced in our policies, in our cultural imaginations in a lot of cases from the material source that produces it. And so energy is a category that applies to coal and oil and renewable sources like wind and solar, and also to beef tallow and whale oil and wood and human labor. All of these substances and bodies produce so-called energy, but the means of their production is radically, radically, radically different from each other. Um, and so the notion that, that the energy we get from whale oil is the same that we get from oil, from petroleum, or from solar is very different. Those types of energy regimes produce very different types of social power, of social structure, uh, of cultural power, and um, violence, frankly, in the world. And so energy itself, you have to sort of learn how to see, I, I believe that in order to really get ourselves through the crises of fossil fuel modernity, we have to understand how energy itself is uh, almost a, a euphemism for covering up the types of work, the societal and power structures, and the violence produced by extractive regimes. And your 
uh, methodology that you use you call energy archaeology. So how does that work? How does one do energy archaeology? Yeah, well, you know, this, this, this problem of the myth of energy um, and the problem of thinking about whale oil and the particular form of the 19th century whaling industry in the U.S. that I was writing about as energy is that a lot of people would not say that this is an energy industry. Um, I was, um, I've always been challenged um, by really helpful interlocutors who have forced me to think hard about why it's relevant or pertinent to think about whale oil as a form of energy. Um, I think I, I think about the great work of uh, my colleague in energy history, uh, Jeremy Zollin, who wrote the book American Lucifers about um, resource regimes that he called illuminates, using a much more historically apt term to describe what sources like phosphorus and beef tallow and whale oil actually were. Because no one in the 19th century called whale oil an energy source. They called it a lighting oil, a lamp oil. Um, and oil for machines, and no one called it an energy source. So what I am doing is applying a very anachronistic term to the study of whale oil culture, and even to the study of early fossil fuel culture. But I think it's in this moment in the 19th century when a lot of these, um, when, when, when one kind of very, um, um, uh, when, when an illuminant market or a resource market that had a lot of different resource regimes in it became slowly or not even that slowly replaced by a very dominant fossil fuel regime, that's when we start to see this um, illusion of uh, the resources and the labor that produced energy um, happening in kind of print discourse. So my question then was, well, is it really apt to talk about whale oil as energy? And I kept bumping up against the conviction that it was because whale oil um, had so much in common with the oil industry, the early laborers, the early forms, the early ideas, the language, infrastructural units like barrels really transitioned straight from the whaling industry to the petroleum fields in Pennsylvania and West Virginia and Ohio in the middle of the 19th century. And so this sort of finally gets me to answering your question, which is, well, what do you do about methodology? And because I'm committed to um, addressing an audience that is facing an energy crisis in the 21st century, and because I see the roots of that crisis in this mid 19th century moment that I'm documenting, even if I don't see the word energy itself, I had to think about what I was actually doing. And I was really inspired um, and took as models for my work, the work of uh, media archeologists who think about locating the traces of forgotten or ill-used or obsolescent media technologies to help understand um, those technologies on their own terms and media in the present. And that's another anachronistic use of the term um, media for understanding the study of forms that would later become to be called media in the present. So that's what I'm doing with energy. I'm thinking about the resource regimes that contributed to the construction of this myth that has now been reified in, in society and is called energy. 
And um, I'm thinking about um, it with a very deliberately strategically presentist way about how to understand where these ideas came from. Okay. And you had mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, part of this book is looking at Moby Dick and also looking at the kind of Millville revival that turned Moby Dick into like the great American novel that everybody reads and, uh, you know, sort of a cultural icon. Um, and so, of course, you know, countless things have been written about Moby Dick at this point. So what are you adding to the conversation about this book that is just so well known and so widely read? Yeah, um, it, it is true that countless things have been written about Moby Dick and, and its its fame and its its uh, popularity and its, its own mythic status is uh, both... Uh, 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 it is both daunting and um, uh, a side of, of, of my own interest in the novel, frankly. Um, so my book is bookended by two chapters on Moby Dick, actually. Uh, so a good amount of the book is motivated by Moby Dick and treats the novel as its object of study. And what I think I'm able to do is to bring this novel into this 21st, 21st century conversation about energy and to show the ways that Moby Dick described and critiqued an extractive resource industry from the point of view of the 19th century in terms that we should well heed and understand today. And I think that thinking about and theorizing energy from the point of view of the whaling industry, which is something that I try to do, and frankly, I, I'm just trying to do what Melville has already done, is really important and helps us center our ethics about extractive capitalism because whaling is so uh, spectacularly violent. Its violence is very is very easy to see, unlike the slower violence of fossil modernity, which has been unfolding on much larger timescales uh, through climate change and through extractive violence. So I think that uh, what I'm able to do is just bring Moby Dick into a new conversation about extractive violence and to draw out using our 21st century tools of energy analysis to draw out and to see the critique of energy and of extractive violence that is very much present in Moby Dick and to apprehend the limits of, uh, of Melville's ability to critique. Like I think that Melville apprehends and worries about and understands the way that the violence of whaling affects whales and the human laborers of the whaling industry and that complicity in that violence spreads out across everyone who uses or has contact with the products of the whaling industry. But Melville can't quite see himself out of settler colonialism. He can't quite see how the kind of extractive capitalism of whaling is also combined with and imbricated in the violence of US imperialism and settler colonialism. He um, can't see a way out of that violence and really naturalizes it. So it's a critique that I think, uh, Melville's critique of energy is one that really speaks to a 21st century moment of climate violence. And I think that it's a critique that's especially worth heeding because it is a critique with limitations that we ourselves should heed. 
So the second um, uh, chapter about Moby Dick actually is, is chapter five, it's the end. It is at the the chronological end of the time span that is the main subject of my book, 1851, with the first publication of Moby Dick in the U.S., and 1930. And what I'm interested in in that chapter is to think about how does Moby Dick look? How does that critique of extractive capitalism look in the 20th century after this transition, this energy transition, this uptake of fossil fuels into the American economy, the American consciousness has taken hold. How does this critique look? And what is the work that Moby Dick and um, Melville's novel does in the world? How does it connect to other sites of culture? Um, and the Moby Dick that folks are reading in the 1920s and 30s is a little bit different from the Moby Dick that people are reading in 1851. In 1851, Melville's critique really has teeth. It's it's radical. He's seeing almost into the future of extractive industry. And in 1930, Moby Dick is a chronicle of an obsolete and by that point kind of quaint and old fashioned industry whose own violence is pale in comparison to the kind of industrial violence carried out in, for example, modern whaling industries, in fossil fuel extraction, which is taking place on a scale that whaling never took place on. And Moby Dick's critique gets a little bit defanged in the, in the 20th century as the distance of the American reading public grows from that initial whaling industry that Melville sought to write about. Um, and so, and I think it's also worth remembering that um, Moby Dick didn't really become the famous canonical novel that it did until after that moment in the 19-teens and 1920s that literary critics call the Melville Revival. It was a book that flopped um, largely in the era in which it was published. Um, and it was a book that was really only taken up by critics and by a wide reading public in the 20th century after Melville's death. That was when, after Melville's death, after the kind of massive uptake of fossil fuels into American culture, after all of that, that's when Moby Dick became the famous novel that it is. And so I try to think about, well, what is the revival and the strange career of this novel help us understand about energy culture? And so... Speaking of whaling becoming kind of quaint, uh, you know, in its afterlife, how did whaling become a form of entertainment for tourists? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that I was um, struck by when I was first researching this uh, this this topic, which is that there's some there's something a little bit gruesome and ghoulish about traveling to the very recently impoverished sites of an industry and its obsolescence in order to entertain yourself on vacation. And that's exactly what tourists in New England did. Um, the kind of case study for this in my book is the island of Nantucket. And Nantucket had been the center of the whaling industry early in the 19th century. It was, um, Nantucket is an island and off the east coast of the United States, off of Massachusetts. And it was a very convenient port from which to ship whale oil to England and to Europe, which was the primary market for the U.S. whaling industry in the late 18th and early 19th century. And then in the, uh, a little bit later in the 19th century, from about 
1830-1840 onward, the center of the U.S. whaling industry shifted to New Bedford, Massachusetts. And New Bedford was on the mainland. It had a large sheltered harbor, it still does. And it was a great place uh, from which to dispatch and receive whaling ships on voyages because that was a better place to ship whale oil to the over, you know, overland by train to the rapidly expanding United States territories and United States market for whale oil. But what happens in Nantucket after um, whaling kind of leaves Nantucket and shifts to New Bedford is that Nantucket gets really rapidly deindustrialized. Um, at the same time that 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 whale ships uh, in the whaling industry is moving from Nantucket to New Bedford, um, this is also a time when there's a, a a catastrophic fire on the island of Nantucket, and these two factors together, the deindustrialization of the island and this massive fire, really cause the island to become very very depopulated and very poor, very quickly. And this is a radical change for Nantucket, which was the site of real wealth owing to that whaling industry. You see houses and uh, structures from the early 19th century in Nantucket that are um, that really speak very ostentatiously to the wealth that was produced there during that industry. But in the 1850s and 60s and 70s and 80s, Nantucket is empty, relatively speaking, and it's poor, relatively speaking. Um, but the people on the island uh, very quickly apprehend, and, and this story is, is documented quite beautifully in a book that uh, influenced me very much in my thinking, Donna Brown's Inventing New England. The people on the island really saw um, the expansion of the tourism industry in the late 19th century as an opportunity to turn Nantucket very deliberately and specifically into a tourist hub. And that's when Nantucket started to turn some, into something like the, the, the place that it is today, which is a place to go for these glorious beach vacations, a place to relax and unwind. And Nantucket really only became that vacation site um, after the development of the expansion of railroads and steamship lines for passengers, which itself is a facet of fossil modernity. But the aesthetic experience that people came to Nantucket for was the experience of quaintness. And quaintness is um, a nice euphemistic term for a place who wears that wears its poverty and that wears its deindustrialization very clearly on its face. What people called old fashioned, they were talking about, they were talking about underemployed or old um, sailors or whaling captains. Um, architecture that was quaint had to do with uh, a, a wealthy, a house built by a wealthy industrialist that was now in poor condition and had to do with empty ships standing at wharves, not with kind of bustling industry. That itself was not quaint. Um, and so Nantucket is a place that really built its tourist appeal on the exhausted remains of this whaling industry, kind of creating an antidote to fossil fuel modernity. And I think that quaintness, um, there are all kinds of quaintness, all kinds of um, sites that uh, embody different forms of quaintness, not only in New England, but elsewhere too. Uh, but I do think that the particular kind of quaintness associated with evacuated sites of industry and extraction, like whaling, like fishing, like logging, these are places that really show how um, an aesthetic of deindustrialization can turn into 
entertainment and leisure. And then I was particularly intrigued by the parallel that you suggest between the commemoration of whaling in New England and like the lost cause myth and Confederate monuments in the South. So could you elaborate on that connection? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that you're talking a little bit about a chapter later in my book where I chronicle the way that uh, that the whaling industry was commemorated in New England and specifically in New Bedford, which is another one of these whaling centers that I that I mentioned earlier, New Bedford, Massachusetts, um, a, a, a city on the south, uh, on the, in the southern part of, of, of Massachusetts, uh, just south of Cape Cod. So what happens in the early 20th century is that civic leaders start to move, make a move together to commemorate the old whaling industry of the 19th century. And this sort of chapter in uh, the history of US whaling uh, presented a lot of difficulties for me. Um, I think I mentioned earlier that one of the difficulties I had in writing this book was how and whether to understand whaling as an energy industry. And because no one called whaling energy. Um, the, another problem I had is my book traces and follows in some ways the, the fall of the U.S. whaling industry. But it's worth saying that whaling is not ended. <laughs> you know, this is another problem. Um, whaling is not over. U.S. whaling did not end in the 20th century. There was still industrial whaling through the teens and 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. There, um, you know, there was a massive expansion of the global whaling industry in the 20th century as ships got faster and harpoons got more deadly and dangerous and different places in the globe turned to whaling for meat production, especially to feed populations who were impoverished because of the world wars of the 20th century. Uh, Soviet whaling is um, a, you know, a huge industry through the 20th century. And so the thing is, whaling is not over. Um, and so what happens in the early 20th century in New Bedford is that something is over and that something that is over is a thing that the civic leaders of New Bedford call Yankee whaling. And they're referring to a specific form of whaling carried out in deep waters, kind of pelagic whaling, uh, carried out, launched from New England ports like and mainly including New Bedford. Um, by American companies for the purpose of producing mainly whale oil um, and conducted on massive sailing ships, like wooden sailing ships. So this is a very, very particular form of the industry. And this is what they're saying died in the early 20th century. And so the city leaders and the industrial leaders got together and they, they commissioned a sculpture of a noble-looking... Um, harpooner with his harpoon raised in his hand over his head, ready to strike a whale. And they put it in this major public plaza right in front of the New Bedford Public Library. And civic leaders also got together and they commissioned a Hollywood film. They hired a director, they, filmed a, they, they, they formed a corporation called the Whaling Film Corporation. They hired a Hollywood director, a kind of young uh protege of a direct, the director who made Birth of a Nation, um, a kind of famously white supremacist film of the early 20th century. 
they uh, worked together with the director to cast the film, to launch a whaling voyage, to film uh, traditional techniques of whaling, all of this to 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 sort of um, to commemorate an industry that they said was dying. But what I, you know, found in confronting the fact that, you know, hey, whaling didn't end. So what do they think is ending? You know, what I find is that these civic leaders were promoting an image of whaling and like very literally creating an image of whaling in the figure of a white harpooner on a city plaza and the cast of an all white whaling crew in the whaling film called Down to the Sea and Ships. What they were doing was creating a narrative that there was a certain kind of noble heroic industry carried out by white men in the 19th century that was dying because it had come under threat by, first of all, immigrants, racially, racially marked immigrants. And they were thinking particularly of um, the Azorian and the Cape Verdean whalemen who carried out the whaling industry in New Bedford and in Portugal and throughout the Atlantic and Pacific worlds in the 20th century. And they were thinking of the forces of fossil fuel modernity as factors that were leading to the decline of white men. And this is a, a deeply white supremacist uh, patriarchal narrative that portrays white masculinity as an identity category under threat uh, by these forces that seek to extinguish it. And because the whaling industry itself, which had been a source of local pride, was changing, it seemed fit to call it dead and to throw a funeral for it. And so what I see happening in the commemoration of uh, a, a kind of fictionalized vision of white masculine uh, industry in, in, in the early 20th century starts to resemble some of those lost cause ideologies as, as a way of promoting the kind of melancholic, mournful, uh, threatened extinction of a white race that in fact was just trying to hold on to its dominance. And it's worth saying that the act of creating this image of an all white Yankee, quote unquote, whaling industry was a really strenuous act. It took a lot of work because the fact is that the whaling industry of the 19th century in New England was extremely multiracial. It was a place where there were a lot of people of color, a lot of people from all over the world, a lot of indigenous laborers who were working in the industry and carrying it out. And in fact, it was so hard to tell this story that the archives are littered with the, with the, with the, the stories of how difficult it was to get the people of color out of the way in order to represent this whaling world. Um, the folks who, who took this whaling voyage to, um, in order to film uh, the, the act of a harpooning a whale for this uh, film, this 1920s silent film down to the sea in ships, they bring the crew of um, Cape Verdean and Azorian whalers and sailors to actually carry out, carry out the labor of the voyage. And then they kept them kind of studiously off camera. Although you do see some of these laborers in some scenes of the film because it's just impossible to get them out of the way because they're actually doing the work of sailing and whaling. And it was really hard for the sculptor making this harpooner sculpture in New Bedford to find a model who was not a man of color. Um, and so it's a really interesting 
um, moment in the commemoration of the industry that I think points us to the susceptibility of stories of energy transition to narratives of white supremacy and this imagined um, specious threat to white masculinity. And, you know, I see some of this come up not only um, as an analog to lost cause mythology in the South, but also to the way that 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 Trump attached his own narratives of um, white supremacy and patriarchy to the coal industry, the way that he took up coal as an industry that he planned to support and revive, that kind of story of the loss of energy, um, of the loss of industry, of the deindustrialization of a region became an easy site to attach his um, kind of narratives of white masculine anxiety to. And so I think that's another story that helps us be mindful of what kinds of cultural forces energy transition can unleash. Yeah. So then I had a kind of a funny coincidence uh, in that just before I started reading your book, I had been reading one of Zoe Todd's articles where she talks about the idea of seeing fossil fuels as fossil kin from oh, a, yeah. you know, an indigenous uh -huh. standpoint. And then I opened yeah. your book and see you referencing <laughs> uh, that work and that idea. So could you talk about the relevance of um, indigenous scholars, including uh, Todd, for your work? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, that article, uh, Zoe Todd thinking about fossil fuels as fossil kin, uh, really, really blew my mind open. Um, and in that article, uh, what what Todd is 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 doing is thinking about um, sort of expanding um, an indigenous ethic of care to um, non humans in, in 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 the world from um, animals like fish to mineral and fossil kin like oil, and to kind of just name and lament the way that fossil fuels have themselves been unsettled and weaponized against other people. Um, and I think that's a, a really just capacious and paradigm altering way of, uh, of thinking about the violence of extractive capitalism um, is to think about it as uh, first and foremost, a kind of failure of care and uh, a failure uh, to recognize kinship. And I, I just, I, spent, I found that really, really interesting. And I think that is that is one of the many insights that um, indigenous scholars like Todd kind of bring to the study of extractive capitalism. I, I think that the field of environmental humanities really owes to indigenous scholars, indigenous activists, the insight that the you know environmental violence, the violence of climate change, extractive violence, these are one and the same with the violence of settler colonialism. Uh, I think so. Uh, it's so necessary to take in the insight that um, Kyle White raises that indigenous people um, live through climate change all the time in these violent acts of dispossession from indigenous lands, and so. I think that you can't really study energy and extractive um, capitalism without um, acknowledging, learning from, and being transformed by the insights of indigenous uh, sort of thinkers and writers around extractive violence and the um, 
and, and the way in which um, in, in, you know, energy violence is bound together with settler colonial violence and the way that energy and environmental justice are bound together and have to be, you know, co-committed to um, land back to indigenous rights and to centering indigenous voices and conversations about climate change. So this 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 notion of fossil kin, this um, this idea that Todd raises, this is this is exactly the insight about what's wrong with extraction that Melville just can't get to. This is the limits. Of his, you know, what, what one would love to be able to raise up Herman Melville and say, "This is the thought leader for our anti-extractive times," um, but this is the way in which um, Melville just just can't quite um, imagine the way that environmental violence and the violence of whaling is tied up together with the violence of um, U.S. imperialism. But I will say also that 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 chapter I was just sketching out before about. The kind of efflorescence of white supremacist ideology in New Bedford in the early part of the 20th century. Um, what enabled me to see that ideology and to make sense of the archives I was working with was um, the work called Firsting and Lasting uh, by Jeannie O'Brien, which is just an, a really another indispensable work about the way that indigenous erasure happens in New England histories. And I think that what, what I kept bumping up against in that chapter, um, in the archives and the research for that chapter was the way that everyone who was trying to commemorate the, the quote unquote end of quote unquote Yankee whaling used the word extinction to talk about it. And I mean, yeah, there's a, there's an extinction problem in whaling. It, it, it's the extinction of um, of whales that uh, that whaling has very much caused. So that's not what these folks were talking about. What they were talking about was the the, the extinction of Yankee whalers, the extinction of the industry, the threatened extinction of white masculinist uh, settler dominance in the United States. And Jeannie O'Brien's uh, Jeannie O'Brien's uh, sort of term lasting, lasting, you know, naming and speciously mourning the last um, as, as, as a rhetorical device that is itself a practice of indigenous erasure really helped me get my um, hands on, on what was happening there. And it's worth, I didn't say earlier, and it's worth saying that not every act of whaling commemoration was done under this banner of white supremacy, of um, anxiety about the extinction of, uh, of white men. I, I do select out um, the kind of incidents of, of whaling commemoration that really illustrate that. And again, which really lit up for me um, after I had the tools of um, Gene O'Brien's uh, first day and lasting. Okay, so I think our listeners have gotten a, a good sense of all the different things that are going on uh, in this book. So as we're moving towards the end of our time, I wanted to first give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book. Oh, man. Listen, um, my acknowledgments are the most important part of my book. Uh, this book took a long time to write and... There are so many people to thank. There are so many people to thank. I, um, I, I am so grateful to so many folks. I, I, I am terrified of, of of naming one to the exclusion of the 
literal cast of thousands who belong, like who earned a shout out by helping me and supporting me as I write this book. I mean, you know, I think it's worth saying that um, I've had because of my research on this project, I've developed long relationships with the folks at uh, a handful of, of museums in the Northeast, uh, the Mystic Seaport Museum, the New Bedford Whaling Museum, and the Nantucket Historical Association and Whaling Museum. And those folks are just so helpful and so generous about making sure that their collections and the knowledge that they build in their communities gets out to a wider public. And I'm really inspired by that. And I have just hundreds of other librarians and archivists and curators to, to thank for sharing their knowledge, for challenging me. I'm really grateful to the folks who made me sit down and think about how did whaling, how is whaling about energy? And for the folks who says, well, what do you do with the rise and fall story of whaling when whaling isn't over? Um, I'm really grateful to those interlocutors who I think helped me tell a much more compelling story. And man, so many friends and colleagues and mentors who read and critiqued. Anyway, all this, all this is to say, I can't shout anyone out without shouting everyone out. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I always like to ask the question so that, you know, people appreciate that writing a book is never a one person show. There's always so many other people uh, whose names aren't on the cover that you know, are important to the whole process. It is. It is so true. It, it is so true. And it's I think the 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 myth of a single authored publication is, is just that it's just a myth. This is a a work brought into being by a supportive and generous and patient and thoughtful and challenging community. All right, well, that brings us to our traditional final question, which is what are you working on next? Yeah, so uh, thanks for asking. You know, I'm still really interested in this moment um, in the 19th century uh, during the kind of massive uptake of uh, of fossil fuel resources into the U.S. economy, the U.S. Uh, political system and, and, and culture. And while I was researching the kind of impact of the, of the whaling industry on the early petroleum industry in Pennsylvania um, and the impact of the oil boom in Pennsylvania on the, um, on, on the fortunes of, of, of the whaling uh, folks that I, that I write about, I, I started reading a lot of narratives from the early um, oil industry, petroleum industry, and mainly in Pennsylvania and Ohio in the 1860s and 70s. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a scholar of literature um, primarily, and so I'm noticing language. And one of the things that I noticed in the literature about the, the sort of early oil booms of the United States is that folks use the word excitement instead of the word boom. Uh, the word boom is like the oil boom or the gold boom, like the, these, these kind of terms for the kind of mass expansion and explosion of, of, of ex extractive industry at a site didn't really come into use until later. What people called what was happening in Pennsylvania as hundreds of prospectors are descending upon the same region to sink wells and extract oil and try to try to uh, cart it out of the region to sell to market. They called that the oil excitement. And it got me thinking about um, what does it mean to call a resource boom an excitement? Uh, what can the sort of this, this slightly strange 
19th century nomenclature help us understand about the emotional texture of uh, extractive industry is thinking about a boom as an exciting time, uh, as something exciting, help us understand why people can kind of suspend their ethical concerns for the environment, for laborers in the pursuit of profit. Uh, that certainly seems how to be the way that people were describing the Pennsylvania boom in the 19th century. And so I'm interested in reading and researching in more of these archival sources from the early petroleum industry. So I can tell something like the flip side of the story that I explore in my first book, looking not at the obsolescing regime um, at that moment of energy transition, but at this rising regime and the emotional experiences that it gave rise to. And I'm also, I mean, that's that's kind of the main object I have in view right now for a second project. And but I'm also continuing to think a lot about the representation in the 21st century of the 19th century maritime world. Um, I've been reading really deeply in Black feminist thought, uh, taking up Christina Sharp's idea of the wake and the ongoingness of um, the Middle Passage and the transatlantic slave trade as a condition that structures uh, Black life through the present and thinking about that as one of the after effects of 19th century maritime industry um, that still resonates in the present and structures life in the present. Um, so I'm thinking a lot about um, representations of the of the oceanic world as well. So I'm still moving along these two tracks of oceanic and energy studies. All right. Well, as someone that lives in Western Pennsylvania, I'm especially interested in the the first one you mentioned. There, I'll be thinking about the idea of uh, an oil excitement every time I'm like out hiking in the woods and run across like the old rusted tanks and stuff from that that old oh, oil extraction. <laughs> please, please promise that you'll send me a picture or two. I'm, okay. I'm, dying, I'm dying to get out there and hike uh, hike some of those trails and see some of those. Uh, those obsolescent remains myself. All right. Yeah. Well, and if either of those turn into a book project, we'd love to have you back. Thank you. Such a pleasure. I'm so thrilled to be here and really appreciate the time. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This has been a conversation with Jamie L. Jones, author of Rendered Obsolete, Energy Culture in the Afterlife of U.S. Whaling, published this year by University of North Carolina Press.